Well, today is the beginning of the end. Even though we have 14 more sermons after this in Revelation, I think that's the right number, we, uh, we are entering into the last section of the book. It's six chapters long and it's got a lot in it, but um, it is the final cycle, the final series of visions and uh, it builds from here to the very end. Um, We've just finished the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out by the seven angels. Last week we talked about the sixth bowl which was the assembling of the armies of the nations of the earth against God's saints. And then we talked about the seventh bowl, which was God's great judgment day, earthquake and hail. But the seven bowls aren't really over in one sense. There are continued references to the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls through the next few chapters beginning in the first verse of our chapter 17 today. Not only that, but the dragon, the beast, the second beast, also called the false prophet, that we were introduced to in chapter 12 through 15, they continue in the story as characters as well. In fact... Revelation 17 to 19, the next three chapters, seem to be an extended elaboration of the sixth and seventh bowls. So it's important that as we go into chapter 17, we go in with the sixth and seventh bowls in mind. Now, chapter 17 is all one story, all one vision, but it's too long to cover in one week. So we'll look at the setting of the scene in the first seven verses today, and then we'll go into the explanation of the details next week. So let me read Revelation 17, 1 through 7. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven horns and I'm sorry, seven heads and ten horns the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality and on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, 
Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So here in this vision, we are introduced to the great prostitute, as she's called. Sitting on a beast, clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, and upon her forehead it is written, Babylon the Great, mother of abominations. I'm sorry, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So the first question that cries out to be answered is, who is this prostitute? Who is this harlot, as other translations translate it? Well, the first question we have to ask in that is what are the hints that we have here in the passage? What are the indicators that point to who this woman is? First of all, she's called a prostitute. So we know that for the sake of her own gain, she is luring people away from the right path or from the one who deserves their love. Second of all, she is seated on many waters. Now you may say, well, how in the world do we know what that means? Well, it just so happens that verse 15 tells us what that means. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So this woman is not a local prostitute, just affecting a few. She is luring people away throughout the face of the earth. The next hint is that she is referred to as sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names which had seven heads and ten horns. So who is this beast? Well, we've just uh, had the discussion of two beasts in chapter 13 and before that the dragon. And some say that it's the that this is the second beast. Some say it's a conflation between the dragon and the first beast because it's called a beast, not a dragon, but it's red like the dragon. It's full of blasphemous names, though, like the beast. And it's got seven heads and ten horns like both of them. So the point is that she is supported by and carried along by the devil and his wicked helpers. So she's a part of their team and an instrument of Satan. She's also referred to as Babylon the Great. Now you remember just a few verses earlier in the vivid picture of Judgment Day in chapter 16 verse 19 God's, it says that God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so she symbolizes something God hates and will destroy. In fact, that's really what this whole passage is about. It begins, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is Babylon the Great. Now when we talked about Babylon the Great earlier, we said that it represented the city of man as opposed to the city of God. 
that is humanity in rebellion against God. Perhaps the best way to describe who this prostitute is is that she's the world. Not in the sense of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but in the sense of 1 John 2.15-17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus also referred to this world in John fifteen nineteen. When he said to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is consistent with Revelation 18.4, which comes in the next chapter, where John hears a voice from heaven talking about this same woman, this great prostitute, and saying, come out of her, my people that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. One of the striking things about this great prostitute is her beauty. Now you would think that whoever would be riding on a seven-headed, ten-horned monster would herself be hideous. But that's not the case. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup, we read in verse 4. So although she's carried along by the power of Satan, yet she is apparently beautiful and enticing and attractive and seductive. Well, though the three monsters that we've been talking about since chapter 12 are hideous, they are very clever. They know that their effectiveness will be limited if they were merely approaching people as repulsive monsters. They know that in order to maximize their success, they need to improve their public image. They need to come up with a way to come across as appealing and life-giving instead of just horrid and scary. So they called in the top experts in the demonic marketing department. And what did they come up with? This prostitute. She reminds us of the woman in Proverbs 7 who says, I have covered my bed with colored linens. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. And with persuasive words, she led them astray. She seduced them with her smooth talk. This prostitute is literally dressed to kill. Why, even John seems taken by her when he sees her. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, he says, much to the chagrin of the angel 
who apparently challenges him by saying, Why do you marvel? Verses 6 and 7. You see, one of Satan's most powerful tools is when he appears as an angel of light. And one of the most powerful tools of these devilish monsters is to seduce the world in the form of a beautiful seductress. That's why Revelation introduces us to this woman who is trying to seduce people away from Christ. That's the reason the world does not always appear hideous. It appears often alluring and exciting. And not only does she look appealing, but the drink she offers looks the same. For she's serving it in a gold cup. A cup which looks elegant and exquisite, hiding the poisonous and filthy contents. A gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Verse 4. You expect the most precious drink to come from a gold cup. And that's part of the trick. The most vile things are made to look enticing. And now notice the effect that she has on people. Verse 2. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. She makes the whole world drunk. Drunk with the wine of her worldliness. You know that when a person gets drunk, at first he enjoys the taste and the sensation of the drinking perhaps, but after a while he starts losing his ability to see and think clearly. It's interesting, isn't it? that there is such a connection in people's experience and in people's minds between promiscuous sexual immorality and drunkenness. It seems like people want to be uninhibited. They want to to not think straight. They want to get carried away. They want to silence their consciences. Here the prostitute has them under her spell. They have become spiritual alcoholics. Now, it's hard to read this story of this woman, as I mentioned earlier, and not think of the corresponding woman in the book of Proverbs. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, there are two women who are competing with each other. And we can see those two women here as well. The two women of Proverbs, of course, are named Folly and Wisdom. They both call out on the streets trying to convince people to come to them and buy what they're selling. One is selling wisdom, which begins with the fear of God. The other is trying to lure people into foolishness. And in the same way, there are two women in the book of Revelation doing the same thing. The harlot is not the only woman in this story. Here in 17.1, the seven angels who had the seven bowls of God's wrath say to John, Come, I will show you the great prostitute. Several chapters later, one of the same seven angels 
with the seven bowls of God's wrath shows John the other woman. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Revelation 21.9 You see, the church, the bride of Christ, corresponds to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And the harlot, the world, corresponds to folly in the book of Proverbs. And to understand the harlot here, this prostitute, we need to realize that she's in competition with the other woman in the story. We met her first in Revelation 12. We will meet her again in the last couple chapters of Revelation. This prostitute is not just an agent of the dragon and the beast. She's also a counterfeit bride, if you will. Like a prostitute acts as a substitute or surrogate wife, so the prostitute here inserts herself as an alternative to the bride of Christ, the church. Besides Christ, you see, nothing has ever been made on earth more beautiful than the true church of Christ clothed in His righteous robe. She is more beautiful than all the beauty queens. Nothing can outshine her. All Satan can do is imitate her. So in Revelation 17.4, the harlot is dressed almost identically to the way that the bride of Christ is elsewhere described. She is adorned with every kind of precious stone, pearls and gold. She's clothed with linen. All descriptions we see elsewhere of the bride of Christ. The two women may resemble one another outwardly, but inwardly they couldn't be more different. The woman in chapter 12 gives birth to the church. They are her offspring. The harlot of chapter 7 attempts to destroy the church. The harlot offers up a cup full of abominations and impurities. The bride of Christ offers a cup of her Lord's blood for the forgiveness of sins. But we would be amiss to not mention the fact that this prostitute is also the persecutor of the saints. She doesn't just try to seduce them, she also tries to pressure them. Verse 6 And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. By the way, uh, remember back earlier when we were uh, when we saw the martyrs before the throne, um, and some you know say this is the martyrs, the people who died for their faith, and and we said no, this is the saints, and this is why. This is one of the reasons why. Because in verse 6 it identifies the two as if they're the same. Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So why would she want to kill the saints? To silence them? Well, yes. But also to pressure and intimidate those who remain. You kill one and a thousand give up their faith. That's how the strategy goes. 
So, this passage helps us to see the situation that all of us are in in this world. Indeed, we have a mighty God who has redeemed us through the death of His Son and promised us a glorious and eternal future. But the world in which we live is not our friend. It is hostile to our Savior. We live in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. We're supposed to be a different society, a different nation, a different people, a different way of living, a different way of thinking. We're not supposed to desire the same things or love the same things as our non-believing neighbors. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But our enemy is a con artist and a master of deception. He specializes in making things look different than they are. We expect evil to look evil. We expect bad people to look bad. But the things that are most bad are the bad things that look good. The dangerous things that look safe. The harmful things that look harmless. As I said before, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He deals in counterfeits. He has created counterfeit joys, counterfeit roads, counterfeit pleasures, counterfeit fulfillments, counterfeit worldviews, counterfeit laws, counterfeit heavens, counterfeit homes. He makes right look wrong and wrong look right. He makes abomination look lovely and God's law look grotesque. He makes treasure look like dung and dung look like treasure. He makes the Lord of Liberty who came to set the captives free look repressive. He makes the one who is perpetually the new wine that can't be put into old wineskins appear to be stodgy and old-fashioned. He makes the one who rides on a white horse that we'll read about in Revelation 19, whose eyes are a flame of fire and upon whose head are many crowns and from whose mouth comes a sharp sword to look boring. He disguises death as life and life as death. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, remember? What actually would cause death, he said would bring life. And what actually would bring life, he implied, would cause death. So we can't trust the way things look. We've got to realize that Satan can make things look very differently to us than they really are. It's easy for us to see only the attractiveness and have no idea of the monsters that are behind it. And that's just the way Satan wants it. Even John marveled greatly at the woman. 
despite the hideous monsters, the world really does appeal to us because Satan knows just how to impress us. The best fishing lures are the most visually impressive ones. Their death disguised as life. From the perspective of the fish, that is. Not the fisherman. Just like the seductive adulteress in Proverbs 7. So appealing. But the victims had no idea that they were walking into a trap. That they were walking to their doom. Little do they know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of the grave. Proverbs 9.18 So we've got to remember what's really going on. The world is a ploy of Satan. It looks attractive. It looks inviting. But there are monsters behind it making it look good. That's why Peter warns us to be sober-minded and watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 It may sound strange, but one great problem of modern humans is that we don't believe in monsters. Satan's hope is that we will see only the glamour of the world and have no idea the destructive forces that are really behind all of that seductive beauty. Now, is this all about sexuality? No, it's about much more than that. In the Bible, sexual immorality is frequently used as a vivid picture of idolatry. When you worship something else in place of God. Even in the book of Revelation, this is clear. This connection is clear. And though sexual immorality can be an idol, many other things can be idols as well. Even good things like family, work, success, money, sports, beauty, music, fun, house, health. But if they're idols, they kill. All these things have their place as long as they, they're not, they don't become idols for us. But there's one more thing that we see in this passage. And that's the dulling of pain. The prostitute here has a golden cup of wine by which she gets earth dwellers drunk. Now because of human sin, remember in the Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the world. He introduced pain and toil into human experience. Now life hurts. It just does. It's actually good for us that life hurts, but it still hurts. And so the world offers innocent-looking painkillers to dull human pain. The problem is these painkillers also remove all desire to resist Satan's destructive influence in our lives. 
These painkillers blind people to the dangerous nature of the path that they're walking on. And these painkillers numb people from their fear of a coming judgment. Because of the appeal of the world, we often have a desire to have both Christ and the world. But that's not the way it works. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24 Being a Christian isn't just a matter of loving Jesus, or desiring salvation, or wanting to go to heaven. There's also something you must not love, and that is the world. James 4 says this, You adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have both. We are asked, though, to resist the world, not because it is too much for us, but because it's far too little. Much more has been prepared for the children of God than what this world can offer. Christians are really not being asked to give up anything. We're just being told not to settle for less than the greatest treasure. Two things I would say in closing that are key to resisting the lure of the world Number one is realizing it's a lie foisted upon us by a vicious crew of monsters. And the second thing is to realize that Christ is the true fulfillment of every human longing. Now, this passage is about the great prostitute. It doesn't even mention our Lord Jesus. But, of course, he is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. And it all points to him. And this, in this one, we see the alternative that Satan tries to thrust upon the world. But in closing, let us sing together this, one of those great songs that reminds us of the beauty of our Christ and of his loving grace toward us. Let's sing together number 379 in the gray. Please stop.
Gracious God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we have been the recipients of such wondrous love. And Lord, we don't want to be the people who just go on as if this treasure is just what we would expect. But dear Lord, we want to stop in our tracks and remember that we don't deserve this love. That as rebels, defiant against you, straying, going our own way, we deserve nothing but your wrathful and just punishment. But dear Lord, instead, you took pity upon us and you poured out mercy toward us and you took us and you brought us to yourself and you put your name upon us and you filled us with the knowledge of Christ and with the promise of his coming again and the promise of an eternity with you as your children. We praise you for these things. And now as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray that you'd be with us. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with Christ, even as we put this bread and this wine into our mouths to fill our tummies. We pray that you'd fill our souls with the living Christ who died and who was raised again and who even now intercedes on our behalf at your right hand, O Father. We pray in his great name. Amen.